of you are familiar faces, but if anybody is new here, a particular welcome for those who are here for the first time. Uh, if you are new, my name is Frank Clooney. I'm the director of the center and very happy to welcome you tonight. Uh, the center, as you um, will know if you've been here before, and for some of you who are new, has lots of events during the year. And um, we have small groups, we have lunch discussions, religion in the news, we have special projects like next Tuesday at this time, uh, 5.15 I think, the first in series on pilgrimage uh, across religious traditions that will run through the year. We also have book events when faculty come out with new books, which is frequent at Harvard Divinity School. We have a book event around the new book. And all of these events are open. And if you, again, are not on our mailing list and would like to be on the mailing list, we can certainly um, you know, add your name. You can give it to me after the event. The other thing I would say is that tonight's event um, on this panel, How We've Studied Religions at the Center from 1960 on, is intentionally part of the bicentennial year here at the uh, Divinity School. So when I was planning for this event back last year, we had meetings, brainstorming for the bicentennial. It seemed that while the Center is um, 60 years almost, is by no means 200 years, Nonetheless, the center has an interesting history that goes back for some time. And therefore, it was an occasion to think about how we study religions here and the, the nature of the engagement, the different generations of study, and how we have learned. So I'm very grateful to the uh, school itself, to our deans who are here tonight, uh, for extra support to make this event possible tonight. And we're very grateful for um, being able to start off our year in this way. I can't talk any slower. Um, <laughs> I think I just want to wait uh, to introduce the speakers until um, until the camera is running. It's recording now. It is recording. Oh, it is recording. I just want to make sure. That okay. The door okay. Yeah. So I can just, I'm, I'm speaking for the record now. <laughs> You've been speaking for the record. Okay. Well then, on that happy note, we continue with the introductions. So our panel tonight is a, a bit crowded because we have five people spanning the nearly 60 years of the center. And we're very grateful to our panelists for being here tonight. Um, and the charge I've given them is fairly impossible uh, to speak for no more than 15 minutes each. You actually said 12 minutes. 12. 12. <laughs> 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 we all were told different. Very <laughs> you will. Um, to speak about kind of different eras in the history of, this, of the center and how religion has been studied here. And I think it's a particularly exciting group that we have here tonight to do this for us. And I thank everyone in advance for uh, being here. And I'll just give you a very brief introduction to our panelists, going in chronological order. So Peter Slater, uh, very welcome to have you here. Uh, Peter is a, a now emeritus professor in Trinity College, University of Toronto. And he was uh, also past president of the American Theological Society, Canadian Theological Society, Canadian Society for the Study of Religion, and the North American Paul Tillich Society. And he um, goes way, way back with the center. In fact, was here even before the center was founded. He did his uh, doctoral studies here at Harvard in history and philosophy of religion, as it was called then, with a focus on philosophy of religion. And he was here from 1957 to 1964 and then was back again in 2001 for a year as a, uh, a semester as a senior fellow of the center. 
also has the distinction of being the son of Robert Slater, who was the first director of the center. So it's wonderful to have Peter here to evoke that earliest period of the center. Uh, William Graham. Uh, Bill is a, also a longtime friend of the center and can give, um, tell us many things about the center. Uh, Bill is a former dean of Harvard Divinity School. He is the Murray A. Albertson Professor of Middle Eastern Studies in Arts and Sciences. And um, he w did his MA here in 1970. PhD was completed in 1973. And then was uh, lecturer, assistant professor, associate professor, senior lecturer, and became professor in eight, 1986. And uh, lived at the center for some time in the 70s, was it? 60s. 60s, okay. All right, so um, Bill, um, welcome. Uh, Ann Monius um, is also a longtime friend of the center. Uh, Ann has the distinction of having her office where she lived when she was here as a student. Uh, rumor is that she just kept working and they changed. <laughs> <laughs> they just gave me tenure. <laughs> uh, but Ann uh, finished her BA at Harvard in 1987 got her master's degree in Committee and Study of Religion in 1991, and completed her doctorate here in 1997. Professor of Hindu Studies and Related Matters in South Asian Studies. Thank you, Anne. And then fourth, we have David Mozina. Uh, David, who now teaches over at Boston College, uh, finished his MTS here at the Divinity School in 2002, and his, his THD in 2009. Um, during his years at, the, um, at Harvard Divinity School, from around 1994 all the way until the completion of his degree, but he's come back from many events here at the center in recent years, um, knows the center in, in various ways over this period of time. He's a professor of Taoism and comparative religion at DC. And then to represent the, um, the current experience of doctoral students at the center, uh, Kaidi Brown uh, is a 2013 MTS degree from the Divinity School and is currently a doctoral candidate in the Department of African and African American Studies with a focus in the area of religion. So uh, thank you, Kaidi. And Kaidi is also a current resident of the center. And there are many resident, uh, current residents here tonight as well. So thank you all for uh, agreeing to be on this panel. And the idea is. Um, 12 minutes each uh, or so, and then open for discussion. And we'll finish around um, 7.30 or a little bit after that because we got a bit of a late start. So without further ado, we'll go in chronological order and start with Peter. Thank you, Frank, and thank you for inviting me, and thank you for coming out at what I would normally consider supper time. Uh, I came to Harvard in 57 uh, when uh, President Pusey and then Dean Douglas Horton were revamping what was a liberal Unitarian Research Center, really, into a professional Protestant ministry training school. And as part of that, they brought Paul Tillich from Columbia University as a university professor. And I had read, like hundreds of others, the courage to be and wherever he was, that's where I wanted to be, so I came to Harvard. The questions we're looking at are, what do we mean by religion? Uh, where sh should we study it, here or anywhere else? What are our motives? What are our priorities? And I've just come from a two-hour lecture series on methods and theories across the street where the dean was talking. So I have to say, and whose story should we be telling? Tillich was a dialectician, which meant saying yes and no. And, and his thing was Christianity and culture. 
so in what about Christianity and what about culture would you say yes? And successively, basically from a theologian's point of view, gives into apologetics, which is what you lay your word alongside on. And, and his thing was German classical idealist philosophy, which he lectured in the yard on. I was a true Brit. I studied uh, philosophy as an undergrad, and you stopped at Immanuel Kant's second critique. And, and maybe you heard of Hegel, but uh, <laughs> Tillich would go on the third critique of Kant and the post-Kantian and so forth. Uh, so German idealism and the post-Kantian expression of it was his first apologetic interest through Schelling. Then he was a neo-Marxist. He came. He was a World War One uh, chaplain in the army, which is the first time he ever met a proletarian, I think. Uh, but <laughs> and it had a real post-traumatic stress syndrome breakdown, all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but what he came out of that was as a religious socialist in response to the neo-Marxists. So then he's working on that, uh, especially against the Nazis, which is why he had to leave Germany when they took away his job in, in Frankfurt. Uh, his next. Uh, link was to existential depth psychology, uh, and that's where the courage to be in spite of the threat of non-being comes from. And right at the end, uh, in fact, in this building, he met Eliade, and they discussed doing theology and world religions or other religions or Orientalism or whatever you're allowed to call it these days. So anyway, those were the things he related to. Uh, at Harvard at the time, there was strong opposition to religion. I, I'm amazed to listen to two hours worth of analysis <coughs> of what the word means and what a history of religion should mean. Uh, in in uh, the philosophy profs that I had, they were atheists, and they regarded people teaching religion as proselytizers, which automatically disqualified you as, as university academics. Uh, so the, they led the charge against letting any kind of religion be taught to undergraduates except as a strictly historicist thing. And in the Divinity School, among the six or more professors that Pusey brought in, uh, one of the leading lights was Paul Lehman. Uh, and uh, he was a Bartian. And, and all of my classmates, even the ones that went to Tillich's uh, seminars, were Bartians after a year or so, because you couldn't get into Tillich your first year. And by the time you got there, you had gone through Lehman on whichever <laughs> volume of Bart's dogmatics it was. Uh, and, and for Bartians, as you know, religion is the sinful human construct uh, of those whose faith is suspect. So religion is a negative word. Uh, what you want to do is convert Unitarians and others not to Christianity, which is a suspect religion, but to the way of the cross. So in that context, both in the Divinity School and in the Yard, there was strong opposition to studying religion. In the Yard itself, the historian <coughs> of religion was Arthur Darby Nock, uh, who had wrote a book called Conversion. He set out to know everything there was to know between 400 BCE and 400 CE, and probably did in the limited range of available stuff at the time. Uh, and in his book, Conversion, he points out, conversion in those days meant to a philosophy, Stoic, Epicurean, or whatever. A religion meant rights to appease the domestic or state deities, and so forth. Um, and. Uh, at the same time as he was being the historian, and he had a joint appointment, he was the senior fellow of the Society of Fellows. Uh, in, when I came into the PhD program, the way you approached the complaint about proselytizing was to make you do something in comparative religion. So I had to do an exam on an other religion than my own. So my other religion is Buddhism, since I grew up in Burma at one point. Uh, okay. The, there were two time bombs thrown into this 
context at that particular, in 1957. One was someone who wanted to give a chair, now the Stillman chair, for a Roman Catholic to teach Roman Catholics as undergraduates in the university. And another from a group who had worked in uh, downtown soup kitchens uh, during the Depression, uh, who wanted to set up a corresponding chair here to the Spalding Professorship in Oxford, uh, a chair on living world religions. Uh, and uh, neither of these fit the Protestant image of what a divinity school should be at that point. <coughs> Tillich was very German, like there, Christa Stendhal, who was a Scandinavian, had done history of religions and was positive, but Tillich and, and those lot, as some, you all probably know, is you have a Protestant theological faculty, you have a Catholic theological faculty, and then you have history of religions over there somewhere else, okay? So uh, the world religion locution in the title of this place was meant to reflect the donor's interest they wanted living world religions. Why? Because they, they wanted to enlist religious motivations uh, to help towards world peace. This was a time when we really did believe the world might come to an end due to a nuclear holocaust. And these people, uh, and my father had written a book about Burma when the Japanese were about to invade, in which he points out how religion can be used for or against any positive kind of move. The advisor to the donors was Kenneth Morgan, uh, who was suspect from the point of view of the divinity school because he was a graduate of HDS <laughs> from its Unitarian days. Uh, and uh, the, the, they had an awful time finding anyone to take this chair because the lady wasn't going to give the money until she had approval of who they gave, who they nominated mm -hmm. as a result of the Oxford experience and so forth. So they have a global search and, and bear in mind in the 1940s and so on, a lot of scholars lost a decade worth of research time, being like my father, chaplain in the army in, in, in Burma and so forth, uh, so that there weren't that many distinguished professors. Uh, the two big names in, the, in our day were Monsieur Aliada and, and uh, Wilfred Campbell <coughs> Smith. Uh, Langdon Gilkey was on the search committee, told me later that he went into the search with President Pusey presiding. And by then, they all knew that my father had charmed this lady. And, and if they didn't come up with the name Slater, they weren't going to get the $2 million to set up the center. Uh, so they go through, well, what about Eliana? Well, yeah, he's terrific, but he's not really on living religions. <laughs> and I don't think he'll leave Chicago anyway. So. And, and Wilfred Campbell Smith was the one they wanted. But he had just set up a dialogue uh, McGill Institute for Islamic Studies, where you had appointed a Christian and a Muslim, and they met jointly to teach. And, and he'd just gotten a couple of million for this, and he wasn't about to leave McGill. Uh, they sort of liked Robert Bella, but he was too junior. Uh, they liked John uh, Carmen similarly. Uh, but anyway, uh, <coughs> second or third go round, uh, Smith says, Well, what about my senior colleagues? My father at this point is about 60 ish. Uh, Robert Slater, who had done a thesis for Columbia in 1948 on his experience in Burma of Buddhist-Christian dialogue with a Theravada Buddhist a book called Paradox in Nirvana. So um, I don't think Ken Wong was enthused, but uh, the old lady loved the book he wrote on Burma and the Burma Road and all this. So they knew they had to come up with that name. And finally, the search committee says, this is the guy. Uh, and, and he comes. Uh, if you want to see all some of the history of that, look at uh, John Carmen and, and Dodgson wrote a book, uh, Community and Colloquy, uh, uh, which gives some of that history. And someone did a thesis on uh, Dean Douglas Horton and the shenanigans he went through to, to get the approval for these things. I hope I'm not going over my 20 minutes. 
What Dean Houghton did was he called the meeting on, on the Stillman chair when Tillich was lecturing in the class, because he knew Tillich was going to vote against that one. And, and then he put Lehman and, and Krista Stendhal in charge of reporting back, and Stendhal argued that a phenomenological approach to the study of religion would not be inconsistent with the divinity's ethos and so forth. Uh, and um, so by a vote of seven, four, and six against, they approved my father's appointment. As I was horrified, actually. I thought I'd left him safely back in Montreal. And <coughs> so uh, we wouldn't be here but for the diplomacy and skills of Krista Stendhal and my father. Because once he got here, he enlisted Tillich and Lehman and others on the committee to advise on teaching Christianity to non-Christians and had them into lecture. And interestingly, his approach was similar to uh, the dean's uh, biographical. He wouldn't just lecture on Aquinas' system. He would give you a vignette of how, at the end of it all, Aquinas says it's all chaff and throws the stuff up in the air and so forth. So he, he did the history of theology sort of biographically. The emphasis for both Smith and my father was uh, you shouldn't be speaking for others, they should speak for themselves. So dialogue was the magic word. Uh, you should have visiting professors of different religions, Buddhist, Hindu, so forth, living here uh, to, to represent that religion. You didn't speak for them in that sense. Uh, T.R.V. Murty and my father were great buddies, and Murty said we must have been brothers in a previous life, which filled my father with pride, till I, being a true son, said, that means you were the evil son, right? Because he was reborn in Brahmin, but you were born in a Northumberland Methodist. <laughs> so, clearly, anyway, okay. Uh, I seem to have skipped a few dozen pages, but we'll see where we get to. Okay, uh, two points about both Catmull Smith and my father were Cambridge men, uh, Cambridge University, the real Cambridge, uh, and, uh, <laughs> uh, trained by historians. Uh, and, and they were British empiricists, which meant you proved yourself by knowing your facts. Uh, you're a good man if you knew your facts and so forth. It, someone should do a term paper on Wilfred Smith when he uses the word fact, because it's uh, one of the facts for Smith is the fact of Islam getting us to think about theism. Uh, in response to Judaism and, and Christianity. That's, that's a kind of sweeping global gallop that Smith would do, okay. Uh, the the uh, emphasis on dialogue then was reflected in, in having others represent, like Murti and Nasser and so forth. The two things then that came out of Smith and Slater was an <coughs> emphasis on drilling people in knowing their factual traditions. If you look at their lectures, they're pretty much ABCs of what Buddhists think, what Hindus, it's not terribly original in terms of theory, because most North Americans, despite the Vietnam and, and war and all that, really didn't know beans about other religions. And the the uh, other big contribution of my father, you, you really aren't educated unless you live in the place, that residential learning. So the fact that there is this building here is due to him persuading the lady to give a couple, another couple of million, you could do it in those days. The reason the ceiling is this low is because they ran out of money. It was going to be a 10 foot ceiling. But, uh, and, and, and it was going to face that way, but Dean Miller uh, was one of the bargains who didn't like this system, so and that was going to invade his garden, so he turned around this way, and so on. But um, one of the ironies is later, when Miller became dean, 
and he started a fundraising campaign. He takes the consultants from New York around and, and he says, this is Andover Hall and didn't have Rockefeller in those days. And they say, what's that building over there which used to be called God's Motel? Um, and they said, oh, that's nothing, that's the center of the study world we're in, the center for what? And they decided, the consultants, uh, that the thing that made Harvard different from Chicago and Princeton and Columbia was that they had a center for the study of world religion. So suddenly this became front and center for the fundraising campaign. And after that, things were better. Okay. So, residential learning, and, and the first directors lived here. My mother and Mrs. Smith were gracious hostesses. And both having lived in, in India and Burma, they knew sort of a lot of the Orientals who came, what context they were coming from. And the families lived here. Uh, Bill will talk about that somewhat. Anyway, uh, it was a, you, you learned that religion wasn't just a lot of doctrines. It was different meal codes, different dress codes, different all kinds of codes. Mm -hmm. One of the fun things was the Buddhist monk, they gave a, a meal ticket to Harkness Commons because it, it felt like begging for his meals to take his tray down the, the cafeteria and then they you know, threw it down so that he felt at home that way. Except he didn't know how to wear winter boots. Okay, the other, uh, the lacuna in, in what Smith and my father did, from my point of view, was they didn't really have a critical theory of dialogue. So when I came here as a senior fellow when uh, Sullivan was uh, directed, uh, I spent a semester uh, Charles Taylor, who's my contemporary at McGill and so on, uh, told me about a guy called Bakhtin. And, and everyone dropped the name but didn't seem to know what it meant. So I spent a whole semester and I've written a definitive article on that if anyone's interested, on, on Bakhtin's critical theory. And Bakhtin, in the Marxist uh, 20s, 30s, uh, contesting style and so on, uh, is anti-dialectical and pro-dialogical. Uh, and for him, the two heroes of the dialogical approach are Dostoevsky and Dickens, whose dialogue about ordinary people and what it's like to be in, in, in that kind of Victorian world is, is the good news, because the Bible no one's reading. Uh, this is where you go to look. But, so dialogical imagination was what Bakhtin was on about. And from my point of view then, with Tillich, because he was dialectic, anytime Tillich said, uh, yes too strongly, you say, oh, that's undialectical, and you'd then say no, and he'd say, yeah, yeah, and agree, because right? he'd revert back to his position later. But with Bakhtin, you're listening to the yeses and the noes of ordinary language in all the different traditions, as, and, and his examples would be from Jesus' parables of the unjust steward and so forth, and when do you feel justified or not. And, and what I'm thinking is when my father was a bit like Frank, He's looking for the Logos in the Lotus Sutra and so forth, seeing kind of Christian theology in all these other texts. Uh, Bakhtin is telling us to, to listen to the yeses and nos of everyone's own approach and what is good news about it in that sense. Okay, so uh, what I've tried to give you is a feel, give you a feeling for the origin of this place and, and, and the less than ecstatic feeling about its appearance and then the gradual switch over to positive reactions to it. And I guess the question still is, what do we mean by religion, and who do we listen to when we study it? We will have some time at the end for questions and follow-up, so we'll just keep going and then come back. But thank you very much, Peter and Bill. Thank you, Peter. That's, um, uh, I think, a very broad gauge, but also very specific introduction for us. Um, as to the question of how religion was studied here when I was a student in the mid-1960s and early 70s, uh, which is what I was asked, I think I can answer only with reference to the comparative study of religion, 
which was what the center represented and where comparative religion, the comparative study of religion was focused uh, at that particular moment. Um, I stumbled into this place having never had a religion course uh, as a doctoral student in 1966, uh, exactly uh, 50 years ago uh, this month. Um, so I came in with a very much an open mind. I had been a student of history and of uh, uh, and of literature, and had spent a year in Germany doing German literature, but had sat in on a couple of, uh, of New Testament courses because they were interesting and famous people giving them. And uh, so I had had a little exposure, but I'd never taken a course. Uh, uh, so for me, it was all new. And uh, I landed and thought I was going to do Greek religion because I had done uh, Latin and Greek. And I thought I'd do Greek religion until Wilfred Smith told me in my first interview that um, no, you have to do a living religion. You can't do a dead religion. Besides, Zeph Stewart is on leave. So, um, uh, so uh, he said, why don't you do Sanskrit? And uh, I had spent a summer in, he said, you've done Greek and Latin. He said, it'll be easy. Um, so uh, I spent a summer in South India. So I, I did Sanskrit for a while. And then I got a chance to go and learn Arabic and ended up in Islamics. But um, I came in very much open to what was going on here. Uh, but what was going on was, I think, by that time already, in, that was Wilfred's third year, the beginning of his third year, um, he had come in 64, uh, and John Carmen was away that year in India. I think Wilfred had helped arrange for him to be on leave for the year, um, uh, doing a book and working in South India. Uh, so Wilfred was it here uh, at that time for the history of religions. There just was no else who was doing it in that way in terms of comparative history of religion. There were people who were doing histor uh, history of religion such as Stendhal and Kirster and uh, people in the yard, the successors, Zeph Stewart, people's successors to Arthur Darby Nock, uh, but they did not see the study of the world of religious life uh, as really being the history of religions, I think. So it was, I didn't know at the time how new uh, this uh, it reminds us how new, really, this uh, this shift uh, uh, actually was, and it was actually quite exciting. I mean, Wilfred Smith at that time taught and, and continued to teach through certainly uh, all through his uh, first career here at Harvard until '73 when he went away for five years, and when he came back, I don't think he ever taught it again. He may have taught it a couple times. Um, I don't know if you remember his general introduction to the history of religions. Uh, and in that, it was a year-long course, uh, and he cycled every three weeks through another religious tradition. And, um, and all the doctoral students uh, in the program, and at that time, there were, there were right many. I think there were 12 or 14 of us just in the field of comparative religion, which was also a new thing. You have to remember, this was a time in American academia uh, when there were lots of jobs out there in the late 60s, and every, every university was growing and building, and uh, the PhD program here was uh, numbered something like 140. Uh, by the end of the 1960s, which was you know really quite large by any any thinking today at all, and I would guess there were 25, 30 students coming in to to study religion here into the study of religion at that time, just in the PhD program, uh, and then there were some there were of course the THD program as well, which covered a lot of the same fields, but did not have a comparative field at that time. Uh, you you could do a single tradition after a while, but you, you didn't have a comparative field. So it was a PhD program, and uh, Wilfred taught a general introduction that everyone in the PhD program in field I, which was the comparative study of religion, there was A through I were the fields, and the last field, of course, had been added, and that was, uh, that was the comparative study of religion. Um, we all were expected to take that course, and Wilfred also did a first semester 
uh, first year doctoral seminar for all the beginning students uh, in field I. So we had a small, and that I, I guess was maybe 10 people, so maybe we weren't quite 12, but we may have been 10 people in that. Um, so I landed in the middle of this at the beginning, and it was a very interesting ride um, uh, for the first year. Uh, it, uh, it, it was the case that um, Wilfred and John were to be the two people that for a very long time really determined uh, the direction uh, of, uh, of the comparative study of religion and of the center uh, here at Harvard. Wilfred, of course, was uh, certainly trained in theology and philosophy as well, he was, but he was very much a fact man uh, in the Cambridge sense, and Wilfred always insisted upon, upon the factual basis of everything. He's about as, as thoroughgoing a thoughtful rationalist as any academic I've ever encountered. You had to persuade Wilfred uh, and, and people don't, and you look at things written about Wilfred, that he was a, uh, you know, sort of a Protestant minister who had uh, wandered into Islamics uh, while being in India during the war. Uh, and you get all these strange things said about Wilfred as though he were a quasi-mystic, and that was the farthest thing uh, from what Wilfred was. Uh, he really expected everybody to come in and learn the languages, and I think one of the things that you certainly saw was that the core of all of the comparative studies here was that you came in and perhaps did your own tradition, whatever tradition you came out of, but you had to do another tradition and had to do to a, you know, to a reasonable mastery level the languages, the classical language involved. And if you could, you went on and tried to do a modern language as well. But the critical thing was that the language, being able to read the text, uh, was certainly the core thing for the program at that time. And Harvard was well set up to provide that at the time. Daniel Ingalls in Sanskrit uh, was, you know, maybe, maybe along with Van Boutenen in Chicago, the best Sanskritist in the world, probably. Uh, and, uh, and so you had a fabulous Sanskritist here to learn from. Uh, we, had, uh, we had very good, uh, um, at least uh, advanced Arabic instruction from people like George Mackesy and then Muslim Mackey who came at the end of the 60s when, uh, when Makasi left. Uh, we had in Chinese and Japanese, you had the heritage of, and still you had Fairbanks and Reischauer were both still here, uh, and they had really fabulous uh, language instructional programs here. So it was all set up to do this, and obviously the classical languages of the West were very strong here in the classics department. You could, and, and, and frankly, you could get through Near Eastern languages at this time, everything from Akkadian all the way to Aramaic uh, and so forth. So it was well set up to be very much within comparative religion and historical program, where you went deeply into one historical tradition, not your own was the expectation in the doctoral work, uh, and you generally had to do a second tradition which could be your own. Uh, I know in my case, in the end, I did the Hindu uh, material as my second tradition and not Christianity, which was my birth tradition. Um, but you generally did, did your own tradition. And part of that was, I think, Wilfred's uh, belief and John's very firm conviction, uh, John Carmen's very firm conviction, uh, that you really need to be working from some faith tradition that you understood viscerally to some degree, whether you were fully committed to it or not. You needed to be working from that to really be able to engage then uh, with a person from another tradition and to talk about their tradition with them, you needed also to have some sort of tradition that you knew well as well. And so it was, a, it was an interesting, it was, it was dialogical, uh, Peter, I think, in that sense, that there was that sense uh, that, uh, that that was what it was going to, but it was not about uh, interreligious dialogue. 
it was not about dialogue in the sense that came then maybe still holds uh, of people getting together and I don't know a lot of the time giving two monologues and then you know sitting down to eat together and dance together and so forth and being happy uh, it was not that sort of dialogue it was a dialogue of really trying to ferret out uh, really what our differences and similarities are what the differences and similarities are on particular points um, and someone like Masnagatomi, who was the, uh, the maven of, uh, in Sanskrit Indian studies, the maven of Buddhist studies, because Mas, of course, did Chinese and Japanese as well as teaching Sanskrit and Pali. Uh, and I did both some Sanskrit and some Pali, both with Masnagatomi. And Mas was one of these people who, um, I don't know what the dialogue would have been a sense of it at all, but, you know, when he wanted to talk about Buddhism, he really wanted to get down to brass tacks and talk about particular issues and problems and compare them with whosoever tradition it was that uh, the person that he was talking with. Uh, so there were this really like-minded people here. Robert Bellow was still here at that time. I guess he left in 68. Um, and uh, Bella came to the Wednesday evening colloquia. There was a Wednesday evening colloquium uh, uh, every, every week. And people who lived in the center and people who did not but were in the program or affiliated uh, would gather in pretty good numbers every Wednesday night. And sometimes visitors would come. Uh, and um, I think you probably at some point, if I remember right, in the 70s when John was doing it, came for one of those, uh, one of those, those evenings. But when Wilfred was here, Wednesday nights were sort of sacred. You had to, particularly if you lived in the center, you had to appear. Uh, you had to be here uh, to, uh, to take part in these colloquies uh, that went on uh, uh, in the evening. Uh, uh, in terms of, of the students who were working in the field, I've indicated that they, uh, they were primarily, as I say, with scholars such as Dan Engels, whom I mentioned, Masnaga told me I've mentioned, Holmes Welch was here at the time in Buddhist studies and doing, of course, had just uh, in that period of time published his book on modern Buddhism in China. Uh, and he was uh, probably alone in the Chinese uh, studies area of someone really interested in religion. Uh, in Buddhism in particular, and he served even as the associate, I guess the associate director here at the center for at least a couple of years in the late 60s and had an office right up here uh, for a while that, uh, where he came. Uh, he was a lecturer in the, uh, in the EALC department, but he came over. Mas Nagatomi was in Sanskrit and Indian studies, but the center supported part of Mas's appointment, um, and certainly it was part of Holmes Welch's appointment so far as I know. Uh, so the center was early involved. I mean, the early pieces, uh, I don't know whether when your father was here or not, it was, but when Wilfrey was here, he was certainly trying to put money into the broader study of religion at Harvard. And Wilfred always said he wanted the center to be a tertium quid. He wanted it to be a third entity that somehow brokered, if you like, the gulf between the Divinity School and the, the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. And he always felt that the center should be playing that role. And I think if you look over the years, that is the role that it uh, has often taken on and often played. Uh, so in that regard, uh, it worked out. Um, let me say a few words before I stop, uh, simply about um, the, uh, about the issue of the residential role. Uh, I think this role in expanding and consolidating comparative religion at Harvard, I, one could say a lot more about it, particularly in the 70s, at the end of Wilfred's time, beginning of John's time, which is the time that I started teaching in 73, and then Diana Eck in 75. The center supported our appointments in the yard, of the, the appointments that we eventually took up, were in part supported, at least in our junior years, uh, by the center. 
people don't often know that, but that in, led indirectly to the, uh, to the undergraduate concentration, uh, which came right at the transition point. When Wilfrid left, he had set everything up uh, in 72-73, and in 73-74, Dick Niebuhr came over, was actually brought over to the yard on a five-year appointment within the university to move into the yard and be supported in arts and sciences and chair what had been, or what was still then in the first year, the Committee on Higher Degrees in the Study of Religion, uh, and then became the Committee on the Study of Religion when the undergraduate concentration, which we worked on in 73-74 to create, and then was voted through the faculty in the spring of 73 and started in 74. So that really was the realization, I think, for Wilfred, even after he left, of something he had hoped for, and that was that there would be the possibility of undergraduate studying uh, comparative religion, and a number of people were probably rolling over in their graves, but uh, nonetheless, it started then. And I remember one very senior uh, 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 faculty member here, um, actually, I don't mind saying, John Rawls, who when we had lunch with him, trying to persuade him uh, to vote in the faculty council uh, for this religion consultation, he said, isn't that the camel's nose under the tent uh, <laughs> to have religion in the yard in a concentration? Um, and so, but eventually the faculty voted overwhelmingly for it and we've had a concentration ever since. So the center, I think, played a very key role, not just in this doctoral program, but ultimately in what, what went on in the undergraduates and then ultimately, I think, in the master's program, which was created later as well, in the MTS in particular, but also the MDL. A lot of this goes back to this legacy that Wilfred started and John Carmen picked up, and I expect Anne will say a little bit more uh, about that. Final word is about uh, the residential center part of this. Um, I, uh, having you know, uh, come of age in my 20s in the 60s, uh, very quickly got tired of, of encounter groups and this kind of, of, of experience that was typical in the 1960s. So I was never one much for this kind of dialogue and, and carrying on. However, I have to say that the residential quality of the center with scholars, not always even scholars of religion, sociologists from India, uh, various people from around the world, but a devout Hindu lived beneath me. My first, the, 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 I lived one year in the center as a student and then two years as a junior professor uh, in 73 to 75. And both of those times, the people here, uh, the people here were really, um, you know, I think a, a rich part of what you did. And it wasn't so much because we sat down and always had these intense discussions about each other's faith, but because they were there, in a sense, you celebrated holidays with everyone when they did this. They had children in here. You saw children learning to speak a patois of four or five languages uh, in about three months after they arrived. Uh, you had Buddhists, you had Hindus, you had the occasional Sikh. Uh, I mean, it was, uh, it was a place where you, if you had a question, in one of your courses, you always had some, some you know, uh, actually uh, a person, a member of the tradition, to go and ask questions of, and someone to help you with your Sanskrit or with your Chinese <laughs> uh, or whatever. So it was good in all those ways. So I think as a community, the fact that there were a lot more apartments, there was a much less administrative space, and it was all apartments, and the director lived in the front, which, which is now all... Uh, uh, you know, all meeting room and, uh, and offices, uh, the director being in the same place, made it uh, a place that, that worked very well, I have to say. So uh, even as a skeptic about some of these things, I really found it was an enriching and rich place to be. Thank you. Great. Hi, um, so I'm afraid I have, I interpreted the brief a little bit differently. And so we're not going to continue chronologically because I actually moved into the center after John Carmen 
had stepped down as director. Um, so I have, do have a long history with the CSWR, although it began rather inauspiciously. Um, my undergraduate senior thesis advisor lived here, and so I would occasionally drop by to see her, and I'd notice that there were a lot of international scholars around, people wearing saris and salwar kameez, and I thought that was interesting, but that was about as far as my undergraduate involvement with the center went. I lived here, however, during my second and third years in the PhD program in religion here um, in the early 1990s. And I debated whether to say this or not, but it so shaped my experience and what I'm going to say that I said I should just say it, which is that it was not a happy time here in the center in the early 1990s, largely because there was a major transition in vision for the center with a new director who came in the same year that I moved in. Uh, John Carmen had just retired. Um, and there was a kind of continuity, I think, of vision about what the center was, was what it should, the kind of intellectual work it should be doing. Um, from the first director through Wilfred Campbell Smith, John Carmen, David Eckel, who's now at BU for a couple of years interim. So an outside person, faculty member hired from the University of Chicago, which for those of you who are graduate students, if you apply to the University of Chicago, you know it's a very different approach to the study of religion. It's a very different academic culture. Change, transition is never easy anywhere, but I think especially not at an institution founded in 1636. Change is slow train to come uh, in many ways. And so with the new director came a very different approach to the study of religion and what the Center for the Study of World Religion should and could be doing at Harvard Divinity School. And more power to him, that's what he was hired to do. But it made living here, uh, my memories of living here are largely not about the what of what we formally did. They are not about what religion was or formally how we talked about it. They are much more about the how in Frank's topic of how we studied religion. And they have an enormous amount to do with the residential community and the more informal aspects of intellectual conversation here. And it's those elements that I think have really affected me the most and that I hope I've taken with me into my career of teaching and advising here myself. So my remarks then are less about the what, a little bit more about the how. Um, one of the things that, this sounds kind of stupid of me to have to say, but one of the things that first emerged here was to realize where the foci among the residents of real engaging intellectual conversation were. I had the best conversations here on Saturday morning, taking my laundry out of the washing machine while somebody else was waiting for it and putting it in the dryer, and then staying around there for another hour or two because the conversation got going in such interesting ways. That, it was the first time I ever had a real sense of just what could be had from informally talking to my fellow residents who were in wildly different fields. Um, it may be, it's entirely my moral failing that I had never realized that before, but I certainly realized it for the first time here. And the reason for the focus on the informality probably says me more about me as a person, but it's that because there, were, there was no formal requirement or expectation to it, I love to shoot the breeze intellectually without worrying about the payoff publicly or otherwise. Um, and it was here that I first realized this full extent 
to which a fellow student of Judaism or a professor of Christianity on a visiting uh, uh, semester or year here, what they really did have in common with me in terms of the wider study of religion and just how much I could learn from them. So the easy, this easy kind of conversational model that the CSWR generates and embraces through its residential community, I think, is uniquely generative of new ideas because it so often takes all the pressure off of some kind of formal expectation and evaluation. Um, and this mode of engagement, I think, um, certainly paid off extremely well for me. I don't mean this to be completely autobiographical, but I remember exactly where I had the first thought in my third year, it was high time, uh, for my dissertation project. And I was trying to chase uh, my neighbor, Kisayanoto, who was working for Diana's brand, Diana X brand new pluralism project. She was doing research on Buddhism in Boston. You can still see what she wrote on the website uh, 25 years later at the Pluralism Project. We were trying to herd her cat, we could have pets then, into her, door, into her room upstairs, talking about her research on the project. And in that conversation, she actually suggested an idea. We'd been in a class together of what I might do my dissertation on. And that stuck with me for the next 10 years till the book came out. Um, so that mode of engagement, I think, is quite unique to a residential environment like the one that the center supports. Um, and it is, again, generative of so kinds of new, new ideas, new and bold sort of intellectual experiments, in my case, I think, uh, personally, with absolutely no fear of any cost. And that kind of environment, I think, is really precious and all too rare in a university setting. Another thing that I really took away uh, from my time in the center, and I hope, I have at least one doctoral student, uh, he can stand up and disagree in the Q&A, is one of the things also that became very clear to me within my first semester here was all of the possible models of mentoring that went on largely within the time I lived here within the residential community. Not just other, not just faculty who were visiting, but also and primarily the doctoral students who were further ahead of me in the same program. And so in so many ways, whether or not talking about how to get through a second year review, what is a second year review in the doctoral program, how to think about general exams, which grants to apply to go to India, that sort of stuff, all of those people who helped me do that, each in their own way, presented different kinds of mentorship different kinds of model. Again, some of it was formally in their apartments or in mine. A lot of it was out back having a beer um, on the back courtyard grilling something. But those models of mentorship from my fellow residents have really stayed with me. And I hope productively as I you know, have turned in the last couple of decades to doing more of this more formally myself. Um, and not again was all of that mentorship simply pragmatic. There was so much uh, that was generative in the residential community living here that I miss, really, uh, in many ways, about how to read a text, how to learn a language, yet another language in the cast that South Asianists have to meet uh, and have to learn, how to um, think about reading a text from pre-modern South Asia in light of some kind of contemporary theory that everybody was talking about. Informal reading groups, conversations, those models of people further ahead in the academic, 
their academic careers than I, provided this invaluable and various models of how to meet students, meet those who are looking for advice where they are, and try to help them come up with their own best ideas. The residential community provided this, again, incredibly safe space to do that. Um, finally, I thought I'd also just mention something that I have uh, has become something of a motto for me and has allowed me to organize virtually everything in my career publicly, teaching, lecturing, since I left the Center Residential Community to go do research in India. And that is what I came to think of within a month of moving here as the three models of academic engagement or intellectual engagement. I call them the three C's because they are combat, contest, and conversation. There was an awful lot of all three of them here while I lived here. Um, and they are the models that are themselves self-explanatory, I hope. <laughs> Intellectual exchange is a battlefield, a game where you may or may not know the rules, or just an easygoing free exchange of ideas, hopefully over some kind of liquid refreshment. Um, I learned to hold my own uh, in all of them. And I also learned to, fi I also figured out very quickly um, which ones worked for me. And although I may have felt the thrill of a victory in combat, particularly in a formal academic setting here where one of the residents won around, we were always very happy when the combat went our way, but at the same time to also realize the extent to which there are different styles of engaging the religious or the intellectual other and how important it is to figure out which one works for you. And one of the most abiding reasons why I am happy to have my office in the same place my apartment was to still have the same view I had in 1992, which my family thinks is hilarious, um, is that the CSWR, I think, more than any other institution perhaps at Harvard University writ large, promotes the kind of conversational model that really works. Works for me, I think works for a lot of students who feel vulnerable here, and I hope very much continues to work for the residents. Frank has, I think, in particular, really been excellent at promoting this through reading groups, that can model on all kinds of um, obscure topics, back of beyond obscure in some cases, can really just model for students different ways of exchanging ideas, learning, um, generating new ideas without any worry about being evaluated in ways that shut down those thought processes. So for me, uh, after two years of living in the center, this is what I've really tried to take away with me. And I'm sorry I didn't fill in the John Carmen history, um, but that is what the center residential community means, means to me, and I think, I hope, still very much means for the current residents as well. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. Uh, wonderful. We didn't have to fill in every gap. We fill yeah, all right. uh, David. Thank you very much, Frank, uh, for inviting me to participate. My association with the center was during the mid-1990s uh, through the 2000s when I was an MTS student and then a doctoral student at the now defunct PhD program in comparative religion in the Div School. Even before that time, the center was already in my mind a mythical place, a kind of two-seater heaven where seemingly all the influential teachers I ever had in college at Columbia and here at Harvard had spent their most formative years. From Jack Hawley, Peter Ong, Robert Thurman, Diana Eck, Rachel Fell McDermott, and Kimberly Patton, I heard many stories of how the personal and intellectual relationships formed while living at the center as graduate students 
have been the most profound experiences of their professional and personal lives. By the time I arrived, the center was not quite the same hotbed of residential graduate life for doctoral students in study religion. My association with the center was comprised of one-on-one -on -one research and reading courses with John Carmen, held in his post-director office directly through that door to the right. And in seminars with Kimberly Patton and with Larry Sullivan, who was then the director. This coursework was punctuated by a steady flow of center lectures, conferences, workshops, and discussions like this one tonight. During those years around the center, I recall that much conversation about how to study religion had to do in one way or another with Jonathan Z. Smith. By the mid-90s, Smith's theoretical and methodological proposals seemed to have attained dominance in religious studies departments across the country and in the American Academy of Religion. For Smith, religion is uh, not at all a sui generis category of experience and expression of some sort of sacred, as his mentor, Mircea Eliade, famously held. Instead, religion is our scholarly second order discourse for quite ordinary human activity, often having to do with myths, rituals, and canons. For example, the Maori of New Zealand labor to think with their cosmogonic myth in face of complications of that story brought on by the appearance of Captain Cook in the late 1760s. Their myth is not simply an iteration of some universal cosmic pattern, but instead a moment creative ad adaptation of the story in face of a shock from the outside. The, the ancient Babylonian Akidu festival was a ritual attempt to influence events surrounding undesirable kingship succession to set things right. Rituals like the Akidu festival are not simply a repetition of an ahistorical cosmic pattern, but instead, as Smith wrote, quote, a means of performing the way things ought to be in conscious tension with the way things are. In each case, human beings ingeniously labor to rectify the received, the received mythic stories and ritual performances in the face of an ever-changing and messy world. Smith writes, this native work has been obscured by taking the text to be static, to be archaic, to be a myth. By placing it back within its context, the historian of religion may begin to perceive its labors, its strains, its achievements. Such a study may allow us to begin to interpret properly and appreciate homo religiosus as being preeminently homo faber." End quote. Smith explains why scholars have been remiss in noticing religion as human labor. He explains, in part this is because, because historians of religion have traditionally resisted the anthropological as the cost of preserving the theological, preserving what they believe I think wrongly, to be the irreducible sui generis nature of religious phenomena. They have therefore tended to insist on the givenness of the basic elements as primordial and on the secondary degenerative character of human ingenuity." Quote. Smith is extremely uneasy with any appeal to the apprehension or experience of transcendence as a differentiating principle of religious studies. I find the language of transcendence distressingly vague, he writes a field in quest of an undefined, or is it held to be undefinable? Sine qua non is no field at all. Any move by historians of religion to subordinate an anthropological understanding of religion as human work in favor of an understanding of religion as encounter with the transcendent, the sacred, with an object that no other field of inquiry can adequately get at, has been at best for Smith a sheer political attempt to justify religious studies departments, especially in state universities, and at worst, a covert theological attempt to protect the notion of transcendence 
by declaring its autonomy in the face of a ravenous academy bent on reducing it to social and historical forces. Hensmith's turn to the scholar herself as the ground of the category religion. Religion is solely the creation of the scholar's study, Smith famously wrote. It is created for the scholar's analytic purpose by his imaginative acts of comparison and generalization. Smith's nuanced and insightful meditations on the comparative method are full-throated arguments to define religious studies more by methods of inquiry and less by objects of study. In effect, Smith reorients the human subject as the center of both religion and the field of religious studies. If religion has an object of study at all, it is the ingenious labor of Homo Faber, as he creatively grapples with specific myths and rituals in face of historical moments often incongruous with them. While religious studies ought first and foremost to be a self-conscious reflection on the way each individual scholar constructs comparisons to get out the ingenuity of human work. The dual moves here are honest attempts to recognize the anthropocentric nature of religion and the field that worries about it. Now for me, what stands out from those years in and around the center is the memory of critical and respectful engagement with Smith's provocative and influential proposals. John Carmen thought mightily about Smith's insistence that religion was a modern Western construct and an analytic tool for today's scholar. Thinking with Wilfred Campbell Smith, John noticed that modern religious studies in the category religion came out of a long history of translation. John writes, our concept of religion is the product of the translation language initiated even before the rise of Christianity with the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible by Jewish rabbis living in Greek-speaking parts of the Mediterranean world. This process was carried further in the New Testament with the translation into Greek of Jesus' teachings were originally in Aramaic. And a few centuries later, the entire Christian Bible was translated into Syriac, Coptic, and Armenian for Christians in the Eastern end of the Roman Empire, and into Latin for Christians in the West. The translation language produced consisted of a whole new vocabulary of religious terms that pointed in at least two directions. The previous meanings of the word in the language of the new translation, and the meaning of the Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek word being translated, end quote. In this way, reminiscent, I think, of Mikhail Bakhtin's notion of the dialogical character of language, a Christian terminology with memories of pre-Christian and non-Christian meanings of words became the grist for the great Protestant Roman Catholic translation products, projects in the 16th century and later. These operations were often a double enterprise. On the one hand, they were attempts to convey the meaning of biblical terms in vastly different languages. On the other hand, they translated into Latin and modern Western languages the religious vocabulary of other cultures encountered. In this messy and tedious process of translation, Christians and their non-Christian translation partners could not help but notice the varieties and common elements in human religion, even as Christians were doing so through vocabulary derived from the multiple translations of the Bible and non-Christians from the similarly complicated histories of their native vocabulary. For John, comparative religion has often lived in such a translation process. Even as translations are slowly refined to capture increasingly subtle differences and in concepts, inescapably common similarities are undeniable. Further, John writes, the recognition or assumption of universals 
is a deeply rooted part of the Western intellectual tradition. <clears throat> but it is often when the assumption is challenged that the conscious search for a definition of these universals ensues. We may now be progressing toward a critical self-consciousness about cross-cultural universals willing to defend the search for other instances of a general concept, yet aware that we name the universals in some particular and somewhat parochial language." End quote. Our scholarly field for subtly different shades of meaning of translatable concepts might be improving, but that very subtlety beckons us with all the more to question stubborn similarities so widespread they seem universal. For Kimberly Patton, these universals ought to be perennial concerns of religious studies. She, she writes, it is, I believe, disingenuous to pretend that organizing or overarching categories do not exist in a wide range of forms human, of human knowing and thinking, end quote. There are indeed universal patterns, not divorced from mythic texts and ritual performances in their particularity, but nevertheless more than them. Moreover, our students know it, Kimberly writes. Students instinctively understand that when one enters the study of religion, one enters the arena of large-scale, enormously influential attempts to describe ultimate reality. In other words, the interface between the physical and metaphysical realms, and to grapple with the greatest mysteries of human existence. Students know that these attempts have had and continue to have profound effects on human culture and history, effects unparalleled by any other collective cognitive endeavor or material circumstance. They're not persuaded by our enlightened pleas to bracket the truth claims that religions make about ultimate reality. Students want to evaluate those truth claims, particularly in the light of their own experience. And they are far less bothered than we are by either conflicts between a given tradition and those of their own, or between contradictory, contradictory theologies. Instead, students are always moved by authenticity, suspicious of bland attempts to render religiously generated realities generic. This process of evaluation happens even when the student is unconscious of it. One's choice as a teacher is clear. Should one ignore this ontological and existential malaise, since it has very little to do with the purely academic discipline? Or should one attempt instead somehow to mediate or even to deploy it in the learning process, end quote. Not yet socialized into the academic study of religion, our students understand that religion has been and continues to be comprised of attempts by means of myth and ritual and art to describe a relation to something greater than ourselves, something more than an ideology or a cause, something higher, mysterious. As uncomfortable or inconvenient as it might be for us scholars, we must resist the seduction of approaches that wholly ignore the inescapable fact that religious traditions actually make big, metaphysically descriptive truth claims, which often jarringly conflict one another. Now, I read these arguments, which in the mid-90s and 2000s flew around the center in various forms. <coughs> thoughtful resistances to Jay-Z Smith's orientation of the subject, of the human subject, as the center of both religion and religious studies. As Larry Sullivan said on more than one occasion, I like Jonathan's work, but I find him to be ontologically challenged. What I think he meant 
was that religious people, through their cultural forms, are constantly making universal metaphysical claims about the really real, for lack of a better term. We scholars do well to pay attention to the work that religious people do and the comparative work that we scholars do, but we must continue to grapple with how to deal with the big claims generated by religious life. Claims about how human beings relate to things much bigger than themselves. This grappling decenters the scholar of religion, just as it decenters the religious practitioner. Both are recontextualized in a wider world, not so readily controlled, which is humbling. But decentered, less full of agency, seems a more honest way of imagining ourselves in the world, which, interestingly, recent discussions in posthumanist thought are also entertaining. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. A wonderful presentation. And finally, last but not least, Peggy. So um, I wanted to begin um, my remarks with a quote from the book, The Writing Life by Annie Dillard, who's probably an author, um, but um, she also has written scholarly works on literature and religion. And she says, why do you never find anything written about that idiosyncratic thought you avert to, about your fascination with something no one else understands? Because it is up to you. There is something you find interesting for a reason hard to explain. It is hard to explain because you never read it on any page. There you begin. You were made and set here to give voice to this, your own astonishment. And while this quote can read as a bit self-centered, particularly the idea that you were created and made and given life in this historical moment to give voice to your own astonishment, I do think that the work of being a scholar, while it should not only be inward facing and solely about one's own particular interests, many times this is exactly how many of us arrive at our particular fields of study by a fascination with a question, an idea, objects, phenomena that we have not seen written about in a way that satisfies our own interests. And two days ago, I was asked the question by a friendly stranger, why do you study religion? What makes you interested in that? Who does it help? While slightly irritated because it was far too early in the morning to defend the humanities, <laughs> these are not terribly uncommon or necessarily unmerited questions. And in addressing the theme and question of our panel, which is how have we studied religion at the center throughout the years, I have to talk a little bit about the why of study, for whom, and to what ends in order to elaborate the how. I hope to weave the personal and biographical with the theoretical and methodological and posit some future implications and aspirations I have for the study of religion here at the center and within the wider Harvard community. To return to the Dillard quote, my own understanding of my study of religion as both a doctoral student in GSAS and a fourth year resident at the CSWR is very much influenced by what I had not seen on the page and what I endeavored to know and write. My interest in the academic study of religion began during my undergraduate years at Emory University, where I received a joint BA in sociology and religion. Prior to declaring my major, I never envisioned myself studying religion academically, and I certainly had no concept of what a PhD entailed, neither did I dream of pursuing one. My first scholarly foray into religion was a course I took my freshman year of college called Introduction to Religion, which was a survey course described as an exploration of diverse ways of being religious in thought, action, community, and experience as displayed in two or three traditions and cultures, including the non-Western. The course was designed to introduce us to three major religions of the world, 
Judaism, Christianity, and Hinduism. I remember very little about the course, except that it was in this course that I first learned about Zoroastrianism, and it was also the first time that I was able to concretely map and envision a historical timeline where Christianity wasn't the beginning and the end of all things. The second religion course I took was called the New Testament in its context, described as an interpretation of the New Testament in the context of the historical, social, religious, and literary environment of the Eastern Mediterranean world during late antiquity. The two most impressive aspects of the course for me were one, throughout the course being asked by our professor to distinguish between the historical Jesus and the Jesus of the popular imagination and culture, and two, understanding the construction of the Gospels as very much a construction and not the compilation of eyewitness diary entries by Jesus and his disciples. <laughs> On the drive home with my family for a winter break, I was excited to discuss the fi this finding my mother, not so much. <laughs> she was in dismay that she had sent me to college to, quote, become a heathen. <laughs> For my mother, heathenism represented a point of devolution and degeneracy. However, in becoming a heathen, scare quotes, I became more interested in worlds of the sacred and the ways in which I found sacred worlds curiously intertwined with the profane. Much like in Jim Crow era United States where segregation was the du jour order, however the deep and daily intimacies between black and white Americans that existed and couldn't be easily disentangled made segregation that more pathological and absurd. I found a very similar type of intimacy between the sacred and the profane and I wanted to explore it. I took another course in college called Religion and Healing, Medical Ethics and Reproductive Technology, in which we examined various religious, philosophical, social, as well as cultural perspectives about reproductive technology. However, in learning about Catholic, Hindu, and Jewish perspectives on reproduction and bioethics from different geographic locales, I was left questioning, what does my culture, that is Jamaican culture, Caribbean culture, and more broadly, Black Atlantic cultures, have to say about such issues? Our course, of course, could not cover everything, but I observed that that was a running theme during my undergraduate career. There seemed to be limited or no space for other worlds, other subjectivities, other religions, other ways of being. The canon was decided, and what was excluded was left out of the curriculum or was given passing mention or a week in the semester at best. During my final years in college, I was accepted into the Mellon Mates Undergraduate Fellowship, whose goal is to encourage and support um, students from underrepresented backgrounds into pursuing PhDs, so that over time, academia can be more reflective of a diverse array of peoples and research questions. As my initial poll really gets that, who is asking a particular question determines the kinds of research that gets done and the kinds of knowledge that gets produced. And it is intuitive to me that to have more kinds of people asking critical questions um, from within their situatedness is only a good thing. That's just the foundation for how I got into academia. I received my MTS from HDS in 2013, and I primarily came to work with Aisha Belisa de Jesus and Jacob Olufuna, who are working on Afro-Caribbean and African religions, respectively. Um, and these areas were areas of study that I was never exposed to as an undergraduate. As a master's student at HDS, I was aware of the CSWR. I may have attended a few events, but I do remember the first reception I attended during orientation, where the acting director at the time, Susan Abrahams, who is now chair of the Theological Studies um, Department at Loyola Marymount University, she pulled me aside to talk to me, encouraging me to come to her office hours at any time. 
She signaled to me that the CSWR was a space that was interested in students as people. And I went to her office a few times as I took her course, Christianity Between Colonialism and Postcolonialism, and I found it very challenging as a first year student. A more intimate engagement with the CSWR came in the form of one of my good friends, Foon Layo Wood, who was a resident at the center and a doctoral student in my department. She studies African religions, particularly the Ifa Orisha religion of the Yoruba people of Nigeria. And she's also a priestess herself in the tradition. She was a junior fellow at the center and hosted several events focused on African religions. Previously, I remember visiting the center and observing much of the artwork and iconography and thinking that it was primarily Christian, Hindu, and Buddhist inspired. And to be honest, found it strange that she chose to live here. However, the center provided a space for engaging with traditions outside of the designation world religions. And one of the most engaging events was one she hosted um, on divination with Baba Ifa Kunle, a Baba Lawo, or priest of Ifa. As counterintuitive as it seemed to me, the center also ended up being the place where I learned more personally and academically about African religions. Funlaya hosted guided Orisha focal meditations in the meditation room, and as a non-resident, I made my way to the center weekly for these, and had a chance to later share coffee and tea in her apartment and also meet other residents who sometimes came to the meditations. It won me over, and I ended up applying to live at the center once I was accepted into the PhD program and have lived there throughout my studies. My doctoral studies started at the same time as me becoming a resident at the center, and in many ways the shifts and changes in my thoughts about my work are both influenced by and act as influences upon the way in which I participate as a resident. I return to the question, why study religion, for whom, to what end, and how? The history of the center on its website states that anonymous donors gave money for the center to be founded to quote, help Harvard University maintain graduate and undergraduate courses in the religions of the world, to train teachers in this field, to give ministers a sympathetic appreciation of other religions, and to stimulate undergraduate interest in religions of the world, end quote. I think this intended mission is largely reflected in what the center still does today. Yet I think there's a more perceptible dialogical relationship between the role of critic and caretaker that makes it a unique space as both a center within an academic, school, academic institution and a residential center. I read the book Critics Not Caretakers by Russell T. McCutcheon as part of my capstone course in religion as an undergrad. And he argues that the study of religion must be rethought as an ordinary aspect of social historical existence, wherein the scholar of religion is a critic of cultural practices rather than a caretaker of religious traditions, or a quote, font of timeless wisdom. However, at the center, there's a commingling of critics and caretakers, and the two are not always mutually exclusive. We also have practitioners of various religions and faiths and non-practitioners. I would consider myself spiritual with an appreciation for African-derived religions, but not necessarily religious, while my roommates are Catholic and Muslim. I would warn that merely coexisting in the same place as people of other faiths does not necessarily contribute to greater understanding and certainly not parity between groups. And I think in this period of the CSWR, many of us bring that awareness to our studies and living situations. There is a privileging of particular religions within the category of world religions, and it doesn't help us to deny that. I think being mindful of the epistemic privileges present in the categorization of knowledge as a whole and feels like religious studies and theology is key. I and many of my peers attend to the social, political, and historical rendering of meanings, the need for self-reflexivity in scholarship, and the awareness of the inextricable connection between knowledge and power. 
Presumptions about the sui generis nature of categories such as religion and world, and world religion specifically should be viewed suspiciously with attention to particular interests and identities, class, gender, race, sexuality that constructs knowledge, what is written into dominant discourse and what is left out. Linnell Cady posits that, quote, entrusting knowledge to the determination of experts, whether medieval clergy or modern professors, is to risk allowing particular interests to control what accounts for knowledge at any given time. I think that as, as interested experts in this space and in the political moment, um, having this center is important. If it is a space where we ask, different, ask difficult questions, where we rise to meet ethical, theological, philosophical, and social challenges in a way that takes seriously vernacular and living religion. And by that, I John Bowman, who defines vernacular religion as religion in the way that people experience, understand, and practice it. It shapes everyday culture and disrupts the traditional boundaries between official and folk religion. And lastly, my vision for the future of the center is for it to continue maturing into a space that allows for differing expressions of belief, shaped by different individual, communal, and national contexts, and to constantly be relevant in its time and to strive to be reflexive and also reflective of the worlds we want to see. Thank you all for wonderful presentations that were incredibly disciplined and um, give us some time here. Um, what we'll do in a few minutes is move in the conference room in front, we have a reception. Um, we thought we'd move it up there, partly because um, it's, it's a nice room up there, and partly because following the ancient traditions, the center community will be gathering here at 8 o'clock for its weekly conversation this week on something in Islamic philosophy. Um, so before we go, though, to the front, maybe we have time like for two questions that might give our uh, speakers a chance to interact with one another, and then we can continue informally up front. Would anyone like to um, pose a question? Or there's such a breathtaking range of experiences here. Yes, My question for Anne is, how would you compare the academic culture at Harvard and Chicago towards the academic study of the region? Um, well, I think that that is hard for me to do, aside from the caricatures that are told at each institution. So my undergraduate degree, my PhD, everything is here. I've never had any kind of, so all we're going on is caricature. So I would not, we have graduates of the University of Chicago uh, program in the room, such as our director here, who might care to comment on both, but I don't have any personal experience. <laughs> I mean, I was not in the divinity school at Chicago. I was in the South Asia department. And in those days, early 80s, it was very much, we will teach you languages and how to read, and you do something with them as you wish. It was very kind of non-ideological and basically opening up the space. If you teach somebody languages, they can do something with them. Um, and I think maybe the divinity school at Chicago and the divinity school here we're more concerned about the methods, what do we mean by religion, and so on. So it, it's even hard for me to, to make the comparison, but it's an excellent question to think about. Another? Um, yes? I hope to come to the event on the 30th, but I wasn't able to come. I did read uh, Dr. Rupp's statement, you know, some of it, what he said, and I was impressed by his emphasis that I took on comparative religion. And I, I'm also very concerned about 
understanding and, and being able to talk to one another. And we dialogue is, is part of, I know, what we're talking about. But it seems to me also we need a framework because often dialogue is talking past people and not talking on the same topic, on the same framework. So I tried to develop a philosophical, not a, not a theological framework that everybody can use to understand their own point of view and also help understand other people's point of view. And then I took a concern, Islam and, and Christianity, and tried to use that framework to compare them used on point by point uh, of different top main topics. And to me, this is the type of understanding, this is the type of comparative religion, comparative faith that we need to, to deal with. Not that we're going to understand, not we're going to agree, but at least we know or can see where other people are coming from and we can see exactly, you know, how we different. Not that we're living in two different worlds, but we're living in the same world, but we see it from different Great. points. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, I was struck with the five presentations about how much continuity there is. <coughs> Questions that were already emerging in the late 50s seem to continue in various ways, like what is this field? How are we doing it? What are the personal commitments? I would, I would thought there might have been more divergence, but at least the way I was hearing it is right up to what Kaidi was saying, a lot of concern about basic issues that then have this practical application. Do we have time for one more? Yes, for everyone, anyone on the panel, where do you see the big opportunity for CSWR decades ahead? You can all answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to answer it first, but I do want to, I'm itching to tell you a, a nugget when we story uh, Bill mentioned him, I, I will get. Nagatomi had a neighbor who was an American modern historian, and he was told as he came up for tenure that he really wouldn't fit into North America until he knew how to do outdoor barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he had awful trouble with the fire. So finally someone said, well, the trick is silver foil. And he tried that, and it was even worse. So finally he went next door to see what the American was doing, and he discovered the silver foil was supposed to be under the coals, not on top of it. <laughs> so then he concluded, the, really, the real reason the North Americans are superior is nothing to do with their philosophy of religion, it's their technology. <laughs> but uh, on, on your, uh, your question again was, where do you see it going? I, th I think the newer generation, thanks to the American people, are much more informed about religion than the students we had. Uh, um, apropos the Chicago thing, for instance, my uh, former student uh, uh, who went to Chicago, uh, what's his name again? Uh, Bruce Lincoln. Uh, ended up writing a thesis on Zoroastrian compared with East African rituals and cultural centers and so forth. And, and I said, you know, where did you get this from? I mean. Well, he said, no one ever told me all I needed was a dictionary and, and a grammar. And he did it all strictly languages. I think the center here has always pressed 
encountering people who are actually living a religion of some kind. It may not be the one they're studying, but there's a, a lived feeling to it. And apropos of that, and then I'll shut up. Uh, Wilfred Smith never used the word dialogue. He thought that was serial monologue. His, his word was colloquy. And he meant talking around it to the point where you understood what a Hindu temple meant to the Hindu. And, and, and you wouldn't get that just from one Hindu. You'd get it from sort of being part of the world and, and living it. So that kind of personal involvement thing has always been a theme, I think, here. And, and Frank, who hasn't gotten mentioned, the reason he excited those of us who are in theology was he, he came up with a comparative theology model that said, I can still be a Christian and get something out of reading that Hindu scripture for myself as a Christian. So it's still that personal involvement and dimension, which I think this place is accentuated and will still. Yeah. I mean, I can't answer where it's going to be in 10 years, but you I think that's... might be the director's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe. But I mean, I think that's also sort of a good thing, because in my opinion, I think having that pliability and flexibility more so is important, where I think within those 10 years, the center should be a place that can respond to what is sort of happening at the time and what needs to be done, rather than sort of having a projected idea of um, what should be. Um, I think that's sort of more of an important quality, as Professor Monias mentioned, um, sort of slow changes. And we don't want to be 2045, but still in 1636 at the center or at Harvard in general. So I think that pliability and flexibility to meet sort of the challenges that are happening at the time is more important than necessarily forecasting exactly what's going on. I do think Heidi's comments earlier uh, point in one direction in the center and probably the study of religion will continue going, which is not in the way the way the center was formed was around the great religions of the world, meaning about five, six, seven religious traditions, not very many traditions. I think now the notion of religion has transformed a great deal. It's not just by bringing in the study of so-called primitive religions or a small tradition, but it's, it's by recognizing that the religious world, even within the great traditions, is hugely diverse and complex. It wasn't that people like Wilfred Smith didn't know that and recognize that. It was just that the times were such uh, that, um, that I think religion couldn't be seen as this constantly changing uh, reality that now, I think, uh, is being better addressed uh, than it was 40, 50 years ago. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've spoken about this in a podcast that your uh, office did uh, a few years ago. But one of the things that one of the new kinds of dialogue that I think is imperative, and I think the center is well placed to engage in, is the dialogue to the explosion of interest in other fields about religion. Um, it's routine that our students from HDS go take classes at the Kennedy School, the law school, et cetera, and are somewhat taken aback by the simplistic ways in which religion is treated mm. in those domains. And um, my own sense is that there's a very strong desire for some, um, for some outreach on the part of the Divinity School, and I think the center is particularly well-placed to do that, to um, engage not just the religious other, but also the academically disciplined other, um, to lend a different sort of uh, level of subtlety, for example, to the way economists um, uh, 
uh, think about religion and the way religion affects the global marketplace, etc. I think that that's something the center is very uniquely poised to do, and ultimately, I think that the survival of the field will depend on it sooner or later. That there's some kind of um, establishment of a vital need for a department or a program solely devoted to the study of religion and not that there's value in that and not just religion and politics, religion and economy, religion and business, religion and law. That's vital in today's university. David, would you like the last words? Uh, not particularly. If anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is, uh, yeah. Um, I, well, to center in ten, in 10 years, um, one thing that this just thread uh, made me think about is I think there are certain ideas that came up uh, and became important and influential in the last decades of the 20th century that places like the center have to grapple with. And power comes to mind. And I think that uh, a lot of fields are imbued with these ideas of power that were developed from the 60s on. And, um, and I think that religion as a field in general, the state of religion, has to uh, grapple with that as well. And I think a place like the center is well poised to do that given the way it's already set up. So I think that that's an important conversation. Well, thank you so much. Um, I think this is a wonderful way to begin the year, opening up uh, questions that are both perennial and new as we look to the future. And we'll have lots of events in this room in the months to come. As I mentioned, next uh, Tuesday at uh, 5.15, one of our residents is starting a series on pilgrimage in different traditions. Both practitioners who went on pilgrimage and theorists of uh, that you're welcome for that, and there'll be a lot more events during the year. I'd invite you now, um, because this room has to be reset up for the residents meeting at eight, to come to the uh, conference room in the front. We have lovely refreshments, and the conversation can continue. But let's uh, conclude by thanking our wonderful panel.